Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. I was part of the first generation of my family to go to college. Now, not having had family members who had gone to college, I had no context inside the family for what to expect when I went away to college. Most of my expectations were set by entertainment, TV and movies. What I saw on the little and big screen is kind of what I thought college would be like. Now, I didn't buy into it wholesale. I realized that they were playing these things up for entertainment and that the experience would be different from what I saw in some ways, but I thought some of it had to be real. One facet of campus life that seems to play out in a lot of college TV and films are pranks. Humorous activity that the student body engages in, usually fairly harmless to blow off steam. Now that stuff seemed to me like probable. After all, I had been in high school and pranks were there and I figured in college they must just be more so. But then I went away to college and it wasn't so much a thing. People talked about it when I was a freshman, but I didn't really see much of it. Then in my sophomore year, I moved into these campus apartments and I had a good group of roommates, friends I had made in my freshman year, but my next door neighbors, seemingly kind of rambunctious party types, but they seemed nice. The more I got to know them though, the more I realized that they were kind of loose cannons. They were the pranksters that I saw on TV and in movies. Most of it alcohol-fueled. They had labeled themselves the Tree Musketeers. I don't know why they came up with this particular handle, besides the word tree being in it, but they had chosen it not because there was three of them, because there was four of them, but because they had this habit of taking potted trees that they found around campus and bringing them back to their apartment. They had two of them. And they were sizable, so I don't know how they got them in there, but they were very proud of them. So the Tree Musketeers, while loud and sort of annoying, kind of made for fun neighbors most of the time. In the second semester of sophomore year, when we were coming into the spring, they got a new obsession, which was parking signs. I don't know where they got their first one. They had snagged it from some campus parking lot. But then they started to get more things from parking lots all around campus and bring them back and set them up in their bedrooms. One night, I was leaving to go to the student center. They had a great arcade there. And one of the Tree Musketeers comes ripping around the corner, bumps into me and says, oh my God, I'm glad I met you. You gotta help me. He was a little tipsy, but it seemed urgent. So I started following him. As we were running around our apartment complex to the other side, that didn't face the paths, but instead was in this big grassy field, he said to me something that I'd never forget. He said, Tim, that's not his real name, but I'll call him Tim, has a parking block on his head. Now, I'm not sure if that's the official name for what a parking block is, but that's what we call it. It's that concrete block that is in front of a parking space that prevents you from driving forward over the parking space. It seems that they wanted to finish the entire parking lot motif of their bedroom, and that one of these parking blocks 
would be the thing that would bring the whole room together. And so they had drunkenly picked one up and decided to carry it back to their place on their shoulders and were going to bring it in through a window in the back, which seemed like, I guess, a good decision if you didn't want to be spotted. So while trying to shift it to get it through the window, one of the tree musketeers let go, and then another one let go, and as it teetered, it landed on Tim. When I ran around the corner, I was terrified as to what I was going to see and wasn't sure how I was going to help, but it wasn't that far a trip, and as I turned the corner, I could see Tim on the ground, and his legs were kicking as he was trying to, with the help of the two other musketeers, to move the parking block off his head. What had happened was, lucky for him, the ground was extremely soft. It had been soggy and rainy, and it had driven his head into the ground, so most of the soft ground absorbed the hit. So I ran over, and we managed to get this off, and he popped up like nothing was wrong and then proceeded to kind of fall against the apartment building. We would bring him to the student medical center, where he would be diagnosed with a mild concussion. But other than that, he was pretty fine. It was one of many pranks that I would see over the years. And why it kind of sits with me for so long, besides the image that will always stay with me of a guy with a parking block on his head, his legs flailing about, is that it was really stupid. It was the antics of people who had not thought out the prank at all. And I think a lot of pranks are like that. The ones in the movies and TV shows you see are well thought out. But I think in real life, most of them are kind of done spur of the moment and not very well thought out. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a movie about really smart people who when they prank, they really think things through. Real genius. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about its reception, its music, its soundtrack. And we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us. So without further ado, let's start the show. Real Genius is a 1985 sci-fi comedy. It was directed by Martha Coolidge and written by a bunch of people. And we'll talk a little bit about them later. It is about a group of very smart college students being used to make weapons and then rebelling against being used. The movie is directed by the award-winning film director and former president of the Directors Guild of America, Martha Coolidge. Coolidge was born in 1946 and is probably best known for directing Real Genius and the 80s classic Valley Girl. That's really a film that I need to cover soon. I think it was my sister's favorite film for a while. Coolidge had gotten her start in New York before moving to California in the mid-70s and going to work for Francis Ford Coppola. Her first film is a much more serious film than some of her follow-ups, 
a film called Not a Pretty Picture. It was well-received enough that she would get funding independently to produce Valley Girl, which was an amazing combination of great young actors and really fun music. She would make more movies, being nominated for lots of awards over the years. Her 1999 HBO work, Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, would be nominated for 11 Emmy Awards and win five. In addition to her movie work, Coolidge also did some great work on television in TV shows like The Twilight Zone 1985, Sledgehammer, Sex and the City, CSI, and many, many more. Now, this film had a lot of people writing it. It had two credited writers, and then probably around four people rewrote the film, including Coolidge. But we'll start off with the credited writers, Neil Israel and Pat Prof. Neil Israel was born in 1945, screenwriter, producer, actor, probably best known for Bachelor Party and Real Genius. Pat Proft, born in 1947, really came of age in the 60s and early 70s, worked on the Smothers Brothers, and then would work on a lot of the Zucker Brothers films. He's probably best known for his work on the Naked Gun films, but also did some other great 80s and 90s stuff like Police Academy, Bachelor Party, Moving Violations, Hot Shots, and many, many more. Both of these guys have quite a resume. As I said, they had some people rewrite, including Coolidge and PJ Torgve. Torgve is a Canadian screenwriter involved in Second City and SCTV, probably best known for Real Genius and Back to School, but was also a producer and head writer on the well-regarded TV series WKRP in Cincinnati. Two other people were brought in to rewrite it, Lowell Gans and Mark Babalu Mandel. Gans and Mandel are writing partners, been writing together for quite a while, starting on shows like The Odd Couple, then moving on to things like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, then doing work on films like Night Shift and Splash, a great comic duo. I've seen Babalu Mandel's name on many things over the years and was always struck with his first name, Babalu. Turns out that was his nickname, which I didn't know at the time. And his nickname was given to him by Gans when they met back at the New York Institute of Technology before they went to Hollywood in the early 70s. It's named after a character in the Philip Roth novel Portnoy's Complaint, which I've never read that. So didn't know that Babalu Mandel was a character in a book and now... Mark Mandel became Babalu Mandel. Fun bit of trivia. We'll return after these messages. Well, that space game there looks like a thrill a minute. Why not try a real blast? Laser Blast by Activision, a new breed of game cartridge for your Atari video computer system. Battle endless attackers, fight their force fields, and dodge their radar tracking systems. It's light years away from all those other space games. What other space games? Laser Blast by Activision. And now, back to the show. So the CIA has hired Professor Jerry Hathaway, who works at Pacific Tech University, to develop a laser weapon that can assassinate people from space. Hathaway recruits really smart students and then uses them to build components of this 
Super Laser. His latest recruit is a high school student, very young, named Mitch Taylor, who is brought on for two reasons. One, he's brilliant with lasers, and he wants him to work with another student who's kind of gone wrong to him. Someone who had come in sort of like Mitch, real clean cut, ready to work hard, but then has started goofing off a lot. And so Hathaway thinks that if he brings Mitch and Chris Knight, the ne'er-do-well, together, that Mitch will be a good influence on him. Now, Mitch idolizes Chris Knight, thinks he's great. When he meets him, though, he's very disappointed. Chris is a prankster, a troublemaker. He does some great silly pranks along with a close group of other nerdy friends. One of the things you see in the film that I just want to have a little aside about is this moment where he is using a vending machine and putting coins made of ice in it. And the thermos that he pulls them out of is labeled liquid nitrogen. This always bothered me until recently. I had never looked up what the deal was because how is it that the liquid nitrogen is cuttable? It's not that important overall, but it bothered me from a science perspective. Now in the script, the thermos, while it contains liquid nitrogen, it is keeping a column of supercooled dry ice frozen inside. And that is what he's using in the vending machine cutting to be the size of a quarter. And then when he puts it in there, the dry ice just evaporates. And I imagine the person whose vending machine this is opens it up and thinks, how are they getting my food out of this? Doesn't make sense. Also doesn't make sense that they would keep this vending machine going after people have been stealing from it for so long, but it's a movie. So the government wants its laser. There's lots of pressure. As I said, we meet Chris's friends. We also meet a broken earlier student named Laszlo, who's been living in the tunnels under the university. And to get to his place, there's this cool roller coaster, because Mitch sort of discovers how to get there. Laszlo is obsessed with winning a sweepstakes. What he wants to do is do a whole bunch of entries into the sweepstakes that he can write with a machine. You can enter as often as you want, but he's done the math for how much he should win. And he does at the end. This is actually based on a real thing that happened in 1974 done by Caltech students Steve Klein, Barry Megdal, and David Novikoff, and they had entered a McDonald's sweepstakes in the same way. So the laser gets built, they're all happy with themselves, then they figure out what it's for, thanks to Laszlo who tells them, and they decide they're not going to allow that to happen. They're not going to give the government a laser that can kill people, and so they do some crazy science to change things around. The pranks are pretty high stakes, but instead shoot the laser into Hathaway's house, which has been filled with popcorn, and it fills the house with so much popcorn that it breaks apart. Everybody's happy except Hathaway at the end. Cue the music, everybody wants to rule the world, movie over. When the producer of the film, Brian Grazer, who would go on to have a great career as a producer with Ron Howard at Imagine Films and the director Martha Coolidge were doing research for the film. They were trying to look at what geniuses do and the things they come up with. And they discovered that at universities like this, that often a lot of these so-called geniuses were also very much into pranks and mischief. According to Coolidge, some of the most inspired practical jokers on college campuses are in the advanced science programs. They see a situation which seems perfectly normal and ask themselves, what's the funniest, most amazing thing I can do to turn this situation upside down? It's not just high spirits, but a release. 
a kind of safety valve against the tremendous academic pressure they're under. It becomes the basis for a lot of the story's humor. So they are doing crazy stuff with chemicals and turning their dorm into an ice skating rink, and my neighbors are stealing giant slabs of concrete and dropping it on their heads. Coolidge would do research and interview lots of students at Caltech, which is the university that would become the basis for the film, actually a place called Dabney House at Caltech. Some of the students would serve as consultants, and many would play extras in the film. The big sequence in the film is the popcorn sequence, destroying the house. To accomplish this effect before we had lots of digital technology, they needed a lot of popcorn. So they started by building the frame of a house and then trying to figure out how to fill it with popcorn. And then how to not only do that, but have the popcorn fly out in all sorts of different directions. And they would use air blowers and conveyor belts, a whole crazy array of things to make this work. The thing is, they also needed a lot of popcorn. And so they came up with a bunch of air poppers that they built. They were 10 foot high and capable of popping 2,400 pounds of popcorn an hour. They had to pop popcorn constantly to keep up with the 190,000 pounds of popcorn they needed. And then once the popcorn was made, they needed to keep it safe so that it wouldn't burn because it could be a fire hazard. They would spray chemicals on it. And then they needed to keep the birds from eating the chemically laced popcorn, thinking it might hurt them. So they had to constantly cover this and store it. According to Grazer, we eventually used enough popcorn to feed 720,000 moviegoers, each eating the largest tub sold at theaters. At retail, the cost would have been $1.8 million. But since we were among the world's largest consumers of popcorn, if only for about five minutes, we received a substantial discount. That is an amazing amount of popcorn. The film has a sizable cast. We'll talk mostly about the main people. Val Kilmer would play Chris Knight, the star of the film. He really runs away with most of it. Brian Grazer was interviewed and said that he remembers when Val Kilmer came in for the role because he did things a little different. He performed tricks. He had candy bars with him. He was also a bit irreverent, making fun of Grazer, saying he looked too young to be a producer. So a little bit of sass, which fits really well with the Chris Knight character. Val Edward Kilmer was born in 1959 has been in a great number of films. In the 80s, his big films were Top Secret, Real Genius, Top Gun, and then the film Willow. In the 90s, he would keep rolling and do things like The Doors and True Romance, eventually playing Batman and Bruce Wayne in Batman Forever. But it didn't stop there. He would continue working throughout the 90s and into the 2000s and still works today. Gabriel Jarrett played Mitch Taylor. Gabriel Jarrett was born in 1970. Real Genius is definitely what he's best known for, but he got his start in the 1981 film Going Ape, a film that I adored as a kid. I'm a real sucker for any movie with monkeys or apes in it. In addition to Real Genius, he would work on films like The Karate Kid Part 3 and Apollo 13. On television, he would work on shows like The West Wing, 21 Jump Street, and L.A. Law. Michelle Mayrink played Jordan Cochran. Mayrink was in three Pretty big 80s films, Valley Girl, Real Genius, and Revenge of the Nerds. She also had a memorable guest starring role on Family Ties as Mallory's friend. When I worked at the video store, 
one thing you would get from people when they came in is they would tell you who their crush was. Why they rented a film would often be because one actor and or actress was in a film. And a whole bunch of people would talk about Michelle Mayrink being in movies and how much they really liked Michelle Mayrink. It drove a lot of interest in Real Genius and Revenge of the Nerds. A lot of people like the character Jordan from this film, her high energy and intelligence. Some of those people worked on the TV show Chippendale's Rescue Rangers because the character of Gadget Hackwrench, according to the show's creator Tad Stones, was based on Jordan. William Atherton played Professor Jerry Hathaway, born in 1947. Hathaway is a great character actor. You will know him from his work in Ghostbusters, where he played Walter Peck, and Die Hard, where he played Richard Thornburg. Just a great creep. Amazing to have in a film, but his resume is much bigger than just those two films. But that's where most people are going to remember him from, because he's just so great in them. Another great character actor in this film is John Grease, who played Laszlo Holyfield, the other genius who lives in the steam tunnels of the university. Grease was born in 1957, modern-ish. Audiences are going to know him as Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, but his resume is immense on film, on television, Movies like The Monster Squad, Running Scared, Get Shorty, just lots of great movies and great TV shows, including an amazing turn on Seinfeld. Very talented. Robert Prescott played Kent, who was the lackey of Professor Hathaway. Does a great job. Has a good TV and film resume, but probably best known for playing this kind of role in this movie and the 1984 comedy Bachelor Party, where he played Cole Whittier. Mark Kamiyama would play Ik Ikagama, born in 56. Not a huge resume, but he worked on Real Genius, 18 Again, and Roomies. Sadly passed away in 2021. Meet Chris Knight, the Einstein of the 80s. What are you doing out there? Floating, sir. His IQ is higher than most people can count. Have you ever seen a body like this before in your life? She happens to be my dog. Well, then I guess you have steal his pet project he turns getting even into a science roger <laughs> real genius rated pg now playing at a theater near you the film was released on august 9th 1985 and would land in 990 theaters it would gross 2.5 million dollars in its first weekend and would go on to make $12.9 million in North America alone on an $8 million budget. So profitable right away. I remember when those commercials for Real Genius would start showing up on TV, and then you'd go see the film, and there's this scene that you would see in the trailer, and they would use it in advertising of Val Kilmer floating outside the dorm window in a deck chair, and you never saw that scene in anything. It's a great-looking scene. Makes you wonder where it is, but I guess it wasn't necessary for the plot. But one of those scenes that's in the advertising, but not in the film. Let's see if I can get this out. So I got the paper from my area from the opening weekend of Real Genius. And we had two theaters in my town at this point, a fourplex and a sixplex, both Lowe's. And at the fourplex, which is the one I normally went to, they were showing Fright Night, Summer Rental, Weird Science, and European Vacation. Could you imagine going to the theater and those are the four movies you could choose from? What a great selection. 
At the sixplex, they were showing Cocoon, My Science Project, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Mad Max, Follow That Bird, Rambo, American Dreamer, and Back to the Future. So no real genius at the theaters in my town. I had to go a town over to see this film. And I remember seeing it because at the same movie theater, they were also showing the film Gotcha. And we wanted to see both of them if we could, but we didn't have time to see them both. So just saw Real Genius. Now, what else was out at the time? What were the top 10 that week? Well, at number 10, you had the Western Silverado. Number nine, you had the Sesame Street movie Follow That Bird. At number eight, you had the science fiction Old People Are Awesome film Cocoon. At number seven was Real Genius. At number six, you had the fun teen science romp Weird Science. At number five, you had the, I want to say comedy horror classic Fright Night. At number four, Chevy Chase and National Lampoon's European Vacation. At number three, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. At number two, Summer Rental. And the number one film, the juggernaut, Back to the Future. So a lot of competition, lots of things to compete against. At the time, they still had a re-release of E.T. going. So it was a pretty packed release schedule. On the week it came out, they had very little ads in the paper for Real Genius. But the very next week, a whole bunch of ads. This one is a quarter page ad that had come out. It has Val Kilmer in his I Heart Toxic Waste shirt, which I love. I should make an I Heart Toxic Waste shirt for myself. And he's wearing kind of patterned shirt and bunny slippers. And this was part of how they advertised it. They would say, meet Chris Knight, the Einstein of the 80s. He can turn the simple into the simply amazing. And now he turns revenge into high comedy. So a sort of reference to Revenge of the Nerds. One of the things they did at select theaters during the opening week of the film was they had a giveaway. If you went on the Friday through Sunday to a place that had it opening and it was a participating theater, they would give you the card set edition of Trivial Pursuit from the new Genus 2 edition. Sadly, I was not given a set of Trivial Pursuit cards. I would remember that. And I've tried to find them online thinking maybe they have some sort of special markings on them, but I don't think so. I think this was just a tie-in with Trivial Pursuit and Real Genius at the time. And then it kind of went nowhere because the film didn't really go too far. But a fun little giveaway, a very interesting bit of marketing at the time. And this film had some other interesting marketing behind it. The studio held the first computer press conference, as they called it. And they had Grazer and Coolidge answering questions from journalists via computer that went through CompuServe. So very early computer-connected journalism happening. Siskel and Ebert gave the film two thumbs up. According to the ad, it says, Thumbs up from both of us. I laughed out loud. Ebert himself liked the film and gave it three and a half stars out of four in his column. And he said, It contains many pleasures, but one of the best is its conviction that the American campus contains life as we know it. He liked the idea that these kids fought back and that there was more than just silly, dumb pranks for pranks sake. And while a lot of people who reviewed the film didn't find the script to be particularly strong, the acting in it and even the direction was widely praised in reviews. And it would win some awards at the Paris Film Festival in 1986. Gabriel Jarrett would win Best Actor and Martha Coolidge would bring home the Grand Prix Prize. It would also get nominated for two Young Artist Awards, one for Best Family Motion Picture and one for Best Performance by a Young Actor for Gabriel Jarrett. 
We'll return after these messages. If you own a computer, here's how to get the most out of it without buying lots of expensive software. Get ready to write down a phone number and watch this. CompuServe combines the power of your computer with the convenience of your telephone to bring you hundreds of online services, like a complete set of encyclopedias and the AP Newswire. It helps you decide on investments, bank, make airline reservations, and shop in the electronic mall. It connects you with other computer owners and offers games that pit you against opponents around the country. You get all this and more, and it's as simple as making a local phone call. To get online with CompuServe and over a half million people throughout North America, see your local computer store or call 1-800-522-4477 for a free informative brochure about CompuServe. Call now to get the most out of your computer. And now, back to the show. A lot of people who have seen this film will remember the song at the end of the film. It is by Tears for Fears. It's Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It is a great choice of a song that has meaning behind it for the film. But the film has other great songs in it. Over a dozen bits of music made it into the film. Sadly, they did not publish a soundtrack for the film. Although digital versions exist online, there's one on iTunes and people have mirrored that same thing on YouTube. So if you want to hear the music of Real Genius, you can. Unfortunately, they never released a soundtrack album. They also never released the score for the film. The music was done by Thomas Newman, a award-winning, I want to say, modern legend in film. Newman was born in 1955, known for doing a lot of film scores, including work on The Shawshank Redemption, American Beauty, Finding Nemo, Wally some James Bond films, Finding Dory, and many, many other things. He has been nominated for 15 Academy Awards, tied with composer Alex North for the most nominations without a win, which is crazy. In addition to that, he's been nominated and won Grammy, Emmy, and BAFTA Awards. He does a great job in everything he does, just one of those very talented people, and great they had him in this film. There wasn't a lot done with Real Genius besides those trivial pursuit cards that we all covet. It seems that it would have been really easy for them to do a video game based on this film. I would think like an adventure game where you have to kind of go from place to place, finding bits of the laser, avoiding the bad guys. And then when you get it all put together, you get a shot of the house being filled with popcorn as your reward, something like that. I guess it's not always easy to get a video game made for a movie, especially a comedy, but it happens from time to time. Would seem like something someone who's into the sort of revived retro gaming scene could maybe make happen. I would be happy to play that. And the movie itself is very video game aware. In the steam tunnels in the film, there is writing on the wall, and maybe it's a reference to writing they saw on the wall at Caltech, but the stuff in there is a reference to the video game Wizardry by Surtech, which was an amazing early computer role-playing game. Robert Woodhead, who worked at Surtech and was one of the founders and worked on Wizardry, makes a cameo in the movie. So they're plugged into it, and they have a thank you to Surtech for Wizardry in the credits of the film. So there's a lot of video games going on in the background of this film, but sadly, not in the movie itself and no spin-off into a video game. In 2008, 
it was announced that Val Kilmer had agreed to do a sequel to Real Genius. And there was lots of speculation as to what it would be about at the time. People thought that they would not do the post-Cold War thing, but instead do a modern sort of conspiracy paranoia thing. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, nothing ever came of it. It just sort of faded away. Then in 2014, a television series was reportedly in the works from Sony, Three Arts, and Happy Madison. And that one, we never got an update on either. It sort of made the news. Everybody was talking about it. People were complaining they're going to ruin it. People are saying, oh, it's going to be great. And then nothing happened with that either. So it's just sitting there waiting. That doesn't mean you haven't seen some mention of Real Genius on TV. In 2009, the Mythbusters actually decided to see if you could do what they did in the film and pop popcorn with a laser and then see potentially if you could fill a house up with the popcorn from a laser with the giant sort of jiffy pop in the house. And they proved that you couldn't. You could pop popcorn with a laser, but if you put it in the house and you sort of had the laser on it, it would just sort of cook it. And you can find that episode online or if you're a Mythbusters fan, it's out on DVD and I imagine still being broadcast somewhere. A fun one for a movie that I really like to see them cover. Real Genius is a fun movie about really smart people who are being taken advantage of. They don't understand where their brilliance is going to lead the world. And when they do discover what that means, they take a stand. They decide they're going to control if their creations are used for good or bad. It's a nice message for young people and it makes for a very fun, kind of wholesome film. There's great humor, wonderful acting, 80s music, solid direction. So if you're looking for a film to watch, why not check out Real Genius? Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow the Retroist on social media. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and instagram.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show, you could start by giving the show a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show if they allow you to rate it. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to support the show more, just drop by patreon.com slash retroist and join the supporters there. Supporters of the show get bonus tracks, bonus scans, supporter episodes, and access to the greatest retro community online at the Retroist Discord. I want to thank some supporters, Walt Keegan, Andre Bjarkison, Weirder Science, Chris Butler, JFE1138, MC, Lucas Gramajo, and Sean Conklin. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Mythbusters, Mythbusters, Mythbusters is a great movie. Real genius. I'm sure Mythbusters would be a great movie as well, but not yet. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.